Uh, am I on, Ben? Here? Yeah? Yeah. yeah, okay. Um, well, welcome again to our um, second week on uh, Christian marriage, and, and last week we looked at marriage and singleness, and uh, uh, we looked at why this series is important to us in terms of the world around us as well as in terms of us ourselves, and um, we just looked at some of the issues that face Christian singles. Um, and afterwards, I felt we had a really, fr- a really fruitful... That must be you, because I've not done anything. Um, <laughs> um, I just felt we had a really fruitful um, sort of discussion upstairs, question and answer, and, and I, I want to encourage you to um, come upstairs at the end, um, just at about quarter past 12. We'll probably only do it for half an hour today, um, and we're just going to do half an hour in the upstairs part of the bar where we'll just take questions on the subject that we've covered down here um, and so Paulie and I will be there. So if I don't cover every practical issue down here, don't think it's because, oh, he's just avoiding that. Um, it's partly because there is an opportunity upstairs to talk um, again. And, um, yeah, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, there's probably just one thing that I needed to add to my talk last week. My, my talk last week, I was trying to get a balance between talking about um, being married and being single, knowing that I am married, um, but also I'm, I'm pastor of the church where there are, are singles. And, and I think one of the things I talked about last week was um, if you're single and you need good advice, find a good married couple, mature, who can help you. And that is true. Um, but it would also be true to say that you might find a friend who is single who can give you some good advice. And I, I don't want in any way to think that the only way you can give advice is if you're married, because I know that's not true. Um, and you know that's not true. So I just wanted to add that as, as a way of just wanting to value um, uh, singleness and married, and, and both can bring you good, wise counsel and advice. This week, we are looking at the subject of sex. And you, and you can't really talk about marriage without talking about sex, I don't think. Um, and we're... And, you know that my approach is to look at Christian marriage. And so some of what I say might be actually really um, in marked contrast with what you think of as the accepted view of sex. Because, because I'm not trying just to talk about sex generally. I'm trying to talk about it from a Christian perspective. And so if I say anything that, that you sort of, um, you know, you don't agree with or you get offended by, just try and stay with me and don't sort of switch off. Um, and uh, also don't take it personally. I'm not, I haven't got you in mind. I'm not thinking about that person. Um, I'm literally just trying to present uh, what the Bible says because I think we must be clear. We must be clear about it because if we're not clear, we can get some very, very mixed messages. And so, uh, and obviously there'll be uh, an opportunity to ask uh, questions later. So I'm just going to pray before we get into this. Father, we give you thanks because you're with us. Your, your, your grace to us is, is more than we deserve, Lord. It's more than we deserve. Lord, we come often without a thought of you. We come complacent. We come thinking about other things. And you gently pull us into your presence. And we don't deserve such grace, but you offer it to us time and time again. And so this morning we just say thank you. And so, Father, I just pray, even as I present this talk, that it won't be in contrary to what we've already experienced. You are gracious in your, uh, in your sort of bringing about the, the act of sex in marriage. That is a grace gift from God. And, Lord, I pray that it will be seen that way in how I present it today and how we receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Nothing exists without boundaries or rules. You don't need to think very hard or very much to realise that that nothing in life happens without there being some rule or boundary around it. If you think of um, going to a firework display, just put your hand up if you've ever been to a firework display, whether it's New Year's Eve or... uh, okay, most of us, some of us, have been to a firework display and you go wow ooh and so you know Becky comes into her own in that type of situation <laughs> uh, firework display she does that actually anyway it doesn't need fireworks 
to go wow and ooh, but for most of us, we need something to happen. We go, wow, ooh, look at that. And well, that's what I, that's what I do. And you go to a firework display and it's, it can be quite amazing and magnificent. Um, you also realize when you're at that firework display, you, all we see is the, is the grandeur of it, yeah? We don't necessarily see anything because we don't think about anything else. We don't realize that behind that display, there are rules, there are boundaries, there are clear guidelines that people are sort of adhering to to make that happen. I don't think about it like that. I don't think, oh my goodness me, look at the rules that stop this. This is magnificent. And one of the reasons it's magnificent is because there are boundaries. Now, one of the boundaries is you'll know that, that often you're at a fire at display, you go to the park, and you see, some, you see some people in yellow jackets in the distance. And there's a big, there's a big um, sort of like maybe just rope fence around. There's, in the distance, there's some, and they're there doing the fireworks. And you've got to be like 100 meters away. Um, before you, and, and you can't go right, you can't run up to them and go, oh, can I play? You, you can't do that. No one would allow you to do that. Neither would they allow you to take some of those fireworks. Remember those really big ones? Imagine if you took one of those really big ones, you got the box, you put it in your front room, you say, hey kids, fireworks. Yeah, and you, and you get out your lighter and you light it and you blow your house to bits. Yeah, but people can say, no, 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 you're not meant to use fireworks in that way. They're not designed to be put in your front room. They're designed for big space and with people who've got particular ideas. Nobody protests about that, do they? Nobody turns around and says, my goodness me, why can't I use fireworks at home? It's ridiculous that I can't take them into my bedroom and set them. It's no one says that. You would think that they were ridiculous if they did. Or, or take another example, just because it's very topical, and we're going to watch the tennis this afternoon. Uh, just you go going to watch the tennis? OK, a few of us can watch the tennis. Um, Andy Motor win. Um, now, now, actually, one of the reasons tennis and any sport, if you like sport at all, I know some of you don't, and Pauline doesn't particularly like sport, but... But any sport, one of the reasons they are that, that they grip us in the way that they do and they are exciting in the way that they do. I say to Daisy, it's because it's live, Daisy, and I don't know what's going to happen. She goes, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but one of the other reasons is, is sport is, is played within rules. And actually, you get the best out of it when you play to the rules. Can you, can you imagine if you played tennis and, and it didn't matter where the ball landed? If you just hit it, you say, that's my point. That's what you do like when you're kids and you just, you just hit it. No, that was in. Oh, but where's the line? It would be ridiculous. Yeah? You would say to people, that is ridiculous. I can't play sport like that. Yeah? I need to ha know what the rules are. I need to know how it works properly. And when you break those rules, there are consequences. So if I were to put a big firework in my house and blow up my family, that's a consequence of that action. There are consequences for actions. We accept. See, no one here is arguing that there are natural laws and rules in almost, if not every single area of life. And it's within those boundaries that you find real freedom. Yeah, It's within those boundaries, almost every area of life, there are, there are boundaries that create the freedom that you exist, that, 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 that exists around us. One of the notable exceptions is in the area of morality and sex. In our world, we are seeking to argue for sex without boundaries. We're seeking to argue for intimacy without responsibility. We're seeking to argue for physical pleasure which is divorced and detached from anything else. Do you know what? It doesn't work any more than putting the firework in my living room. The firework was never designed to go off there and sex was never to, designed to be used or operated without boundaries. And it's a real shame and, and our society promotes this. It doesn't just watch it happen, it promotes it. Um, just in a couple of TV programs, I, I've got to be honest, I, we watch these programs sometimes, Friends, we watch and we sometimes watch uh, The Big Bang Theory, if you know anything about that. And they are funny, funny programs, but do you know what they do, which is really sad? They promote casual sexual encounters as normal and they act like they have no consequence on life. 
and that's not true. They promote it. They promote it. You, you get the impression that, oh, you know, they, these people are just having casual sex in and around, and then they're all still mates, and like it makes no difference. That's not true. But they promote it. And so um, it's a shame that, that in our society, that, that's the sort of thing that, you know, people watch those types of TV programs. So we're not even talking about, we're not talking about watching pornography or, or, or sex in films. We're just talking about the promotion of sex as though you can engage in sex and it doesn't matter. It makes no difference. There are, uh, according to Tim Keller, and he's a, he's a good guy, I mean, and, and I agree with these, three common views of sex in our society. The first is this, that sex is an appetite. Yeah, a bit like food. You know, like you when you get hungry, oh, man, I just need some food, just need some chocolate. Yeah, and we all get there yeah, at times, and, and, uh, and some people would argue that sex is an appetite, which means that when you get that urge, you just need to go and find some way of fulfilling it. And it is right to say that, that sex is an appetite. You can't deny that. You can't deny, yeah, I don't I deny the urge. No, no, you can't deny those things. But it must be handled differently to food. The truth is, many of us who have a little bit more weight than we ought to have, it's because we don't know how to control that appetite. Yeah, and we just eat. Yeah, there's more, I'll go to the cupboard. What can I find? And some days, the other day on Friday, I'd eaten everything in my bag by 11.30. I was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I, wanted, I was in the office and Steve was out. I wanted to go down to Emma and say, have you got any biscuits? But I thought, no. Yeah? So sometimes we don't control our appetites. And sex is an appetite in that there, there comes times where you feel urges and, and whatever and you think, well, how am I going to cope with that? And that happens whether you're married or single. That, that sort of thing happens. It is there. It requires, though, careful handling, a bit like the firework. Secondly, there is this attitude that sex is demeaning and dirty. That some people think that, so they, so they shy away from it, even when they're married, and maybe they've formed this view because sex in their marriage hasn't been great, so they get to the point where they think, oh, I don't, I don't, really, like, don't really like sex, it's a bit demeaning, we're, you know, we're not going to engage in that. Or maybe it's come about because of an experience, or it's just come about because of just a, philosophy, a philosophical way of thinking. It's demeaning, it's dirty, I don't want to engage in it. Yeah, I want to try and deny its presence in my life, that sort of urge. I want to deny it. I want to get rid of it. And thirdly, and I suppose more recently, and I think growing, that sex is a form of self-expression. And if you think of sex as a form of self-expression, why wouldn't you choose to engage with it and in it with whoever you like, however you like, whenever you like? If what it is is about expressing myself, this is one of the ways I express who I am. I just engage in sex. That's just one of the, one of the things that, that we do. And often, that's how our society views it. Now, what we don't do, yeah, unlike the firework where we're really clear there's a boundary and everyone would say to the parent who took fireworks into the house how irresponsible you are, everyone would say that 100%. When it comes to sex, we're not like that. We don't necessarily make the link between a rise in sexually transmitted diseases, abortions, unwanted babies. We don't necessarily think that has anything to do with an attitude of sex which goes, it's an appetite that I must satisfy, or it's a form of self-expression. We don't think those two things are linked. Yeah? We don't think to ourselves, are we breaking a law here? It might not be written down, but is there a law that we're breaking that means we are suffering these consequences because of these actions? We don't think like that in our world. We just carry on. And we just, all we do is we adjust our world to cope with all the things that go wrong when we do sex outside of God's way. We just adjust everything in order to cope with it. We don't change our attitudes. But it would be like if, if we got rid of all the speed limits on the roads, more people would die and you know what? It would be like us saying, okay, more people are dying. That means we need to buy. That means we need to create more cemeteries. We need to have more hospitals to cope with the numbers of people that are now dying. That would, it would be like having that type of approach rather than someone saying, do you know what? We just need to kill the speed. That way we might save some people. 
and that's often one of the arguments used for, for why, why you can now on some roads you can only drive three miles an hour, yeah, and there's five humps and they're five foot, and you're like, yeah, you do that in your car, and like you're like cursing in your car, well, you're not cursing, you're just like, oh my goodness me, I've got, this, this isn't doing good for my suspension. You do that, they'll say, ah, oh, safety, safety. Reduce the, reduce the speed limit to 20 miles an hour, you save this many kids' lives. Well, you know what? We could take a very similar view on sex. Yeah? We could take a very similar view on sex that we could save so many lives if we did that. Because I outlined some of the practical um, consequences that can happen. The transmitted diseases, the abortions, the unwanted babies. But that's without going to the emotional cost of sex that occurs in the wrong place and in the wrong way. The cost to the individual, let alone the cost to the community. The Bible puts it this way. God cannot be mocked. You can't mock him. A man or a woman or mankind will reap what they sow. You can't mock God. You can't make him out to be a fool. You will reap what you sow. We will reap what we sow. So it's with that sort of background that I, went, I want to look at sex in Christian marriage. Because you might be thinking, well, okay, yeah, yeah I can see you've got a point, you know, but how, how do we do it then? What happens? How does it work? Let's remind ourselves of the key verse that we've looked at over these last uh, couple of weeks, and it's this, Genesis 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. You see, the Christian view of sex is very different to any of the above, even though some people think the Christian view of sex is that one that relates to sex being um, sort of um, dirty. Some people think, oh, that, that's, what, that's what Christians think. Or, or that sex is boring. That's, you know, that's how people think of um, the Christian view of sex. But it can be summed up in a sentence. Sex is designed for use within marriage between a man and a woman. That's how the Bible would present it. So that's not me. That's not me trying to be funny or controversial. That is how you could summarise the Bible's interpretation of sex. So for a moment, let's focus on that Christian view of sex within marriage, and I want to describe it in three ways. Sex in marriage in three ways. Notice I've got Pauline on the front row again, just so everything's fine. Um, the first is this. <laughs> sex is covenantal. It's a covenant. Um, it talks about cleaving. The man will cleave to his wife. He'll, he'll leave his home or his parents, and he will cleave to his wife. It means to make a sort of a contract, a binding covenantal contract with another person. Sex is a sign of that within Christian marriage. You know, God often made covenants with people and he would often say, right, I want you to remember me in this way. And he would, he would set reminders in place for his covenants, for his promises. Do you know what we engaged in one this morning when we took communion? Yeah, Jesus said to his disciples, do this. And whenever you do this, whenever you eat of the bread and drink of the wine, do it in remembrance of me. And what are we remembering when we do it? The bread represents the body of Jesus. We're remembering that his body was broken at the cross for us. What we do when we, when we drink the wine, it represents the blood of Jesus. We're remembering that he shed his blood for us. Every time we take communion, every time you take communion, it should be a moment where you go, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you that you died on the cross for me. Thank you that your body was broken and your blood was shed in order that I might have life. And he said, do this until I return. Do you know, it's one, of the few, it's one of the few commandments, requests that he made that we stick to. You know, churches everywhere, they stick to it. You go to, you go to a Catholic church, a Protestant church, they stick to this. Yeah, they stick to this moment of remembrance. And sex is like that. It's a covenant. 
It's the renewing. So every time Pauline and I make love at home, we are renewing that covenant. Now, we don't talk about that. I don't say my love. Covenantal time. Yeah? We don't have that type of conversation. Yeah? We don't talk about it like that. You know, on our first night of our honeymoon, we were in this really nice honeymoon suite. I didn't get out the scriptures and go, my love. Let's just remind ourselves of what's going on here. Yeah? But literally, that is what's happening and it's helpful for you to know that that's what's happening. Well, I mean, you don't know every minute, but it's helpful. I knew, I knew that there were moments and I wasn't going to... But it is a renewing of that covenant made by a husband and a wife. Secondly, sex is costly. Well, I was going to charge me. Sex <laughs> is costly. The idea... Stop. (laughs) The two become one flesh. I mean, it says in 1 Corinthians 7, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband, in the same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. That isn't there in order that you can abuse your partner by saying, actually, your body's not yours, it's mine. That's there to to express and to tell you the, the nature of that commitment and that relationship that you have I'm no longer my own yeah the two will become one flesh now if you um and so what that tells us is sex is more than just a physical act it requires not only physical nakedness but it also requires the deepest levels of intimacy and vulnerability when you have sex you're making yourself vulnerable you're making yourself vulnerable to another person. It becomes as close as you can possibly be for two people to become one. That's what's going on. This is what Tim Keller writes about that. He says, don't unite with someone physically unless you are willing to unite with them, with the person emotionally, personally, socially, economically and legally. Don't try and divorce this act of sex from every other part of life, because it doesn't work. Don't try and think to yourself, well, I can overcome all the, or all the vulnerabilities and the intimacy by the pleasure. Don't, don't think you can do that, because actually you can't do that. You were never designed to do that. Sex is more than about giving. It's more about giving than it is about receiving or taking. It's more about giving. The greatest pleasure in sex should be the pleasure you give to your partner. And to be personal for a moment, that is often our experience for Pauline and I. That's the pleasure. The pleasure is giving her pleasure. It's not about finding my pleasure. Oh, that wasn't very good for me tonight. What are we going to do? Yeah, We don't have those conversations because that's not what it is in marriage. It's more than the physical act. Thirdly, Sex is cumulative. In that is this. When you get married and you begin to have sex, see, it's at that moment, when you get married and you begin to have sex, after a few years, or it doesn't take very long before you realise, oh, do you know what? Sex is a little bit more complex than I thought. Yeah? Because, because I, I thought that when we had sex, you know, you're watching the movies, people just seem to have sex and that's fine. Um, but we had an argument this morning and now sex doesn't seem to be on the agenda. And I don't know why. Or, or there seem to be some emotions going around. I can't quite see them or pin them down. But they're there in the atmosphere. And they are preventing this from happening. I.e., what you realise is other things begin to affect it. And that happens very quickly in marriage. Other things begin to affect sex. And then you realise, oh, sex is more than just a physical act. Because if it was just a physical act, why couldn't we just go and have sex whenever we wanted to? Because other things impact. Life impacts, stress impacts, pressures impact, which is why I love the Keller quote, don't unite with somebody physically unless you're willing to unite with them in all those other ways but the reason I say sex is cumulative in that it builds on something is many people think that sex in marriage over time becomes boring, a bit mechanical a bit sort of dry, oh okay we just got to do it or any relationship you begin to think that 
And, for that, and that's when often people get tempted um, in relation to look elsewhere. Oh, it would be really great. Oh, you know, oh, look at that person. You can think all those things. But in Christian marriage, sex does never need to become like this. Because if you have a Christian perspective on marriage and sex, you believe that this is a covenant renewal. You believe this is a costly act every time I make myself vulnerable. And do you know what, do you know what makes it more satisfying? Is after years when you can still have sex with somebody in, in a way that is meaningful and you're not just uniting with them physically but emotionally personally socially economically and legally it's deeply satisfying deeply it's satisfying in a way that no physical pleasure alone will do so when we have sex and you think about your history you think about your relationship and you're still able to engage in that act of saying I'm still yours despite everything that has happened in our life together I'm still yours this bed is still ours, you and me. That's quite a satisfying moment. And that's why uh, I didn't used to believe this, but I think it's true now from my own experience that people used to say, oh, it gets better with age. I think, well, how does it get better? Well, you just get better at it. You just find new ways. No, for me, it's because all those things unite in that one act and it becomes deeply satisfying when you think, oh, for 22 years we've been about, we've been about this learning and growing in this act. I'm still yours. And so, although you might not use all those words, you, know, you don't need to quote all this you know, when you're doing those moments or whatever, but it's there, and understanding it really helps. And when I said that to Pony, I said to Pony, because it's then, then, if that's true, if what I've just said is true, it means that sex is not just about the performance. It's not about, well, how, you know, was I okay tonight? Did, did it work? No, I'm not saying you don't want to improve, but it's not about the performance. It's about the uniting. It's about the coming together. You need to understand that your sex life in marriage is impacted by everything else. And if that is true of sex it means that sex is designed to be impacted by everything else. And so casual sex with somebody where there is nothing else is just wrong and dangerous and will do you more harm than good. Because you engage in it and actually one day you want to get married but you engage in it over here. Do you know what? These thoughts are going to impact this act. You have to sort of work things through and deal with some things. In a good Christian marriage, the ability to continue to have sex after years of all, all the stuff that happens becomes the most deeply satisfying thing. And I say that because I know that there are some here who are early in marriage and you're just trying to work it all out. And I'm saying it's worth working it all out. It's worth sticking with it. In their book, uh, the marriage book, uh, Nikki and Silla Lee, they've got this whole section on sex which I'd recommend you reading if you're married. They say one thing that's quite helpful. They say one of the golden rules of marriage is keep sexual intimacy alive in marriage. Keep sexual intimacy alive in marriage. Why is that so important? Why is it so important to keep sexual intimacy alive? I think it's really important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it distinguishes marriage from friendship yeah now friendship is so important in marriage and and it's the thing that so so much brought Pauline and I together was the level of friendship that we had but actually friendship doesn't replace sex yeah you can be I remember and again sadly a friend of ours who who ended up leaving his wife he committed adultery he had he had decided five years before that his wife was no more than just a really good friend. That's the conclusion he'd come to. She's no more than just a really good friend. Five years later, after probably a build-up, he then goes and leaves her and commits adultery. You see, if you take sex out of Christian marriage, you face dangers. You open yourself up to sexual temptation. I mean, we're all open to sexual temptation, but you open yourself up not just to temptation, but you come 
vulnerable to sexual sin because it is an appetite. There is something there that urges you. And you can give into that if you've taken intimacy out of it. But I think the other reason it's really important in marriage is if you take sexual intimacy outside of marriage, do you know what I think? I think other intimacies will go because sexual intimacy is almost like what pulls all those other things together. The reason that sex can be so satisfying because it tells us that personally, emotionally, spiritually and every other way, we're together. That's why it works. So if you take sex out, what pulls you together? Because suddenly, what's, what's the barometer of your, emotional, of your emotional state in your marriage? Yeah? One of the ways you know, you know when things aren't right is when your sex life isn't working. You think, oh, something's not gone wrong. Something's gone wrong here. What's not happening? Why is she not responding in the same way before? When that sort of thing happens, you begin to ask questions. And the issue might be way back here. The issue might have nothing to do with the bedroom. It might have to do with the kitchen and your inability to help out or whatever. So if you take sexual intimacy outside of marriage, out of marriage, actually you have a danger that other intimacies will be lost that aren't designed to be lost because this is the deepest intimacy. So just on this bit, how do I keep sexual intimacy alive in my marriage? Just three quick things, and I'm sure there are many more, but just three quick ones. First of all, get the right perspective. If you have the right perspective on, 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 on sex in Christian marriage, you're not going to be bothered by performance. You're not going to be bothered by, oh, you know, it's a bit boring. Yeah? Because every time you do it, it's a, it's a covenant that you're doing. It's a costly thing. I'm making myself vulnerable. The fact that we still do it and enjoy it says something about our relationship. It does. Yeah? Because you can't pretend. In marriage, you, can't, you, you quickly get beyond pretense. You quickly get beyond the thing of, oh, well, you know, I can just pretend I'm enjoying it. Actually, after a little while, pretending doesn't work. The danger of pretending is you can get to the stage where you think, well, you both almost agree, oh, we're just going to live at that level and we're just not going to go any deeper. But it doesn't really work. So get the right perspective. Secondly, hold the principle of 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4, where it says, the woman, your body's not your own, and the man, your body's not your own. Hold that principle because that will stop you manipulating and that will stop you abusing. It will stop maybe a man abusing his wife by demanding, but it will also stop her manipulating by refusing. So hold the principle. Protect one another by engaging. Yeah? Paul more or less says that. Protect one another by engaging in sexual activity. And thirdly, how do I keep it? Just the practice, the, the doing it. The more you do it, particularly when you go through life struggles and stresses, and what we've realised, Pauline and I, um, um, is, is my own sex drive is affected by stress. So if I am stressed, I'm less inclined. And what we also realise is that one of the ways Pauline knows I love her is, is that, and I'm not, you know, I'm not like brilliant at this, but that I will still pursue her sexually. Now, I'm not, I'm not a romantic, so I don't even want to pretend that you know, I'm going to put flowers out and I'm going to do all that stuff. Occasionally, in the, you know, we've done those things. But actually, even if you don't do those things, the pursuit of your wife tells her something. And probably one of the other things that, that we do is we talk about it. Yeah? So as, as a couple, and that'll be one of the things that I talk about next week, is the, the ability to talk in marriage, learn to talk. Now, we talk all the time, and I've realised that's a good thing. Now, our girls sometimes like, moan at us, but we talk all the time. We talk things out. This would be one of those things we talk about. So for some people, some of what I've said might have been difficult to hear. It might be because your own sexual experience, or maybe you feel like I've messed up, I've engaged in sexual sin. And I want to address those very directly now, um, briefly using a story in the Bible that looks at sexual sin, how it can be overcome, and that there is hope. So I don't have time to read the story, or read all the story to you, but I'm just going to recap it briefly, and it's the story of David and Bathsheba. If you know anything about 
The Bible in the Old Testament, there's a king called David. He's the most successful, the greatest of all the kings of Israel. And there is a moment where he gets tempted into sexual sin and his sexual sin leads to deception and his deception leads to murder. And, and that's basically what happens. And I just want to talk a little bit about ways we can avoid what David went through. So the passage starts with these words. In the spring, and in this is a 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. So, some practical things. One of the ways you can avoid sexual sin or sexual temptation is, 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 is a practical thing. Do what you're meant to be doing. So David should have been at war when he decides to stay in Jerusalem and hang around in the king's palace. Avoid boredom. Boredom is, is a great tempter. When you're bored, you're tempted. So, so if you know that your, your, your tendency is to get bored, you need to find things to do. But don't just find anything to do. Do what you're meant to be doing. David should have been leading the army in battle, not sitting at home, lounging around. Yeah? So if you're someone who sits at home and lounges around, you need to try and think about, okay, how do I, how do I re-engage myself so that I can avoid the temptation that comes with being bored? Because boredom is a practical temptation. And it's not just a temptation for sexual sin in marriage. That's a real temptation for a single person. Bored, at home, no one's there, computer. Avoid being bored if you can. Secondly, the promise of sexual temptation. So David, one evening he gets up from his bed. Remember he's bored, he's not doing anything. Joab is leading the army. He, he walks out onto the roof of the palace and from there he sees a woman bathing and she's beautiful. So he's attracted. Immediately the promise of sexual pleasure enters his, enters his mind when he sees Bathsheba bathing. Remember Bathsheba isn't deliberately out there trying to, you know, she's not trying to lead anyone on. She's just out there. He's the one who's bored. He's the one who's looking around. Well, what can I do with myself? Oh, oh. He sees this woman and he gets this promise. Oh, there's something in that. He, he allows the thought. So, so sometimes you see things that you're not meant to see and, and you, know, you couldn't help it. It wasn't like you got the magazine and go, oh, man, I shouldn't be. You couldn't help it. But you then do have a choice. Both sexes and appetite, you do have control. Yeah, you have a choice as to what you do at that moment. David lingers the promise of sexual pleasure and he then acts. The power, the next one is the power of sexual sin. David, so the efforts he has to go, remember, now to commit adultery, it's not like she's walking past him and says, David, are you ready? The efforts he has to go, David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And I wonder whether that servant who says that to David is hinting, David, isn't this the wife of somebody who's a loyal subject of yours? Isn't she already married, David? He doesn't use those words, but he's sort of hinting at that to David. Then David, having heard that information, sent messengers to get her. So he ignores it. He ignores the reality that this woman is married to someone else. He ignores the fact that he shouldn't have been there. He sends someone to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. It's an appetite. It can be addictive. In the wrong hands. Normal and reasonable advice David ignores. He was, he was, he was captivated not by the majesty of God, but he's captivated by this woman's beauty. And he uses his power as a king to go and get it. The problem of sexual sin. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. That becomes a problem. A problem for David. It's a problem for her, but it's a problem for David. What does he do? Even at this point, he's like, okay, what am I going to do to cover this up? 
What am I going to do? And he has this long, convoluted plan of trying to get the woman's husband back from the war in order that he might sleep with her so that then it looks like he's got her pregnant. He tries a long thing to try and sort it out. But when he can't sort it out, do you know what he does? He turns to murder and he arranges for the death of Uriah. And he takes Bathsheba as his wife. One sin leads to another. And that's so often the case. You sin here, and you thought, oh my goodness, I wasn't expecting that. And then you sin here, oh, I wasn't expecting that. And then you sin here. Yeah? So you end up in a place you never would have dreamt of. When David wandered out on the balcony and he saw Bathsheba, in his mind did not come murder. In his mind came pleasure. Not thinking about the consequences to the problem of sexual sin, then the penalty for sexual sin. Nathan, the prophet, comes to David, sent by God, because David doesn't doesn't admit it. Most people don't. David doesn't confess. It's all hidden. Nathan comes and tells him a story. And this story is quite a powerful story. He tells him about a story of a man who had thousands of sheep and cattle and a man who had one sheep. And a man comes to visit the town and to the rich man. And the rich man, instead of taking one of his thousands of sheep, goes and takes this man's one sheep, kills it, and puts it before his guest. And when David hears the story, he's like enraged. Why? Because David's just in his heart. He's like, oh, that man should die for that action. And Nathan bravely says to him, it's you, David. This is exactly what you've done when you took Bathsheba from your loyal servant Uriah. You did what this man did. So the penalty. This is what the Lord said to um, David through Nathan. You did it, he said, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. You did it in secret but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. So David's sin is going to be exposed. That's basically what Nathan's saying. Then David said to Nathan, and here you get the heart of David, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan's immediate reply the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. You know, every sin carries a consequence. Whether you see it or you don't. No sin happens in secret, in private. That whole idea of oh, whatever people tr- choose to do in private between consenting adults, that's no one else's business, is rubbish. Because if you choose to go and sleep with, a, with another man's wife in private and in secret, you're damaging the lives of countless people. It's not rubbish. And yet God, David admits his sin, and it's almost like the Lord had done it even before David admitted it, that he's taken away your sin. But the son will die. And that points to something. So then the pardon for sexual sin. Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. There's also forgiveness and restoration. So for some of us here, we're thinking to ourselves, do you know what, I've engaged in stuff, how can it ever be restored? I've done things I shouldn't have done, I've been in places I shouldn't have been, I've acted in ways I shouldn't have acted. This story of David and Bathsheba gives us a perspective of the gospel, actually. This is, this is what Jesus did. David commits a sin which is punishable by death. Yeah? What does the Bible tell us in Romans? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. He, he commits a sin that is punishable by death in God's eyes by sleeping with Bathsheba. But, this passage tells us, God forgave him. And he repented. And it's interesting that his repentance is this. I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't say, I have sinned 
against Uriah. For I have sinned against Bathsheba, because ultimately he had sinned against the Lord. And if you read the passage, you realise that, that God's view of it is not you've sinned against Uriah, you've sinned against me. That's the position. God forgave him. But the son had to die. Why? Because sins need to be atoned for. They need to be dealt with. They need to be paid for. So how does this reflect the gospel? Jesus died on the cross for your sin. He died on the cross for your sin in order that you did not have to die. God takes away the sin of David, not just, oh, I'll just forget it. Actually, the son dies. There is a consequence. There is an action. There is a punishment. David repented. And he repented to the right person and in the right way. I've sinned against the Lord. And if you read in Psalm 51, which is his prayer of repentance, which comes out of this story, he's, it basically says, it's only to you have I sinned, to you. Yeah, I've wronged other people, but it's only to you have I sinned. And he pleads with God, don't, don't leave me. Don't take your presence from me more than anything else. That death was followed by forgiveness. And then you read of restoration. So David commits the sin, he's exposed by Nathan, Nathan confronts him, he repents. Nathan tells him, look, it's been forgiven, but the son will die. The son dies. His little baby dies. And do you know what David does? He mourns. He's, he's weeping while the, ba while the baby's alive. He's weeping, he's, he's mourning, he's saying, God, can you, can you spare his life? But when the son dies, do you know what he does? It says he gets up, he washes his face, he goes into the temple and he worships. How do you respond when God forgives your sin and you know in your heart you're forgiven? You worship. It's the most natural response to what God has done. And you know what he then does? It's really interesting. He goes and he comforts his wife, Bathsheba. Now this is where I don't get the theology. I don't get how God works here. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He ends up marrying Bathsheba. And you know what? It's with Bathsheba that David continues the line through Solomon. You think, God, I don't get that bit. I don't get that bit. I don't get how you're as gracious as you are. I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. But that's what God did. He carries on the line. The covenant is renewed because Bathsheba bears a son called Solomon, who inherits the, the kingdom. Remember, God had promised David the kingdom. Jesus, he, he replaces that baby for us. We've sinned. All of us have sinned. If Nathan were here, he could expose your sin, like he could expose my sin. If you repent and say, I'm sorry, like David, I've sinned against God, I'm sorry. Do you know what Nathan says immediately? It's almost like the words were coming out of his mouth. It's almost like it had already happened. He's already forgiven you. Because do you know that's what grace is? Grace is the fact that you are forgiven and accepted even before you turned. That God accepted you. He had already carried out the act that was going to restore you to himself even before you ever turned to him. He carried it out. And not only does he restore you, but he renews the covenant. He gives you what you don't deserve. David didn't deserve a child like that. But he gives you what you don't deserve. Sexual sin does not need to be the end of your marriage or it doesn't need to be your, the end of your ability to marry or to have good, a good relationship with your husband or your wife. It doesn't need to be that. Sexual sin doesn't need to be something that you hold yourself in judgment over. It doesn't need to be something that you say to yourself, because of that act, I do not deserve all these things. Yeah? It doesn't need to be that. It wasn't that for David. And it doesn't need to be that for you. God forgave him. 
He handled it. He showed his judgment in that there was condemnation and there was death. But he also showed his mercy. And he said, you're not going to die. You're going to be forgiven. And he showed his grace by Bathsheba bearing Solomon, bearing him a son. Can we just stand? I know time's gone. I know the film's not for a little while, but we'll just stand for a moment. We're going to pray. Just want to close your eyes because I'm aware that in a subject like this, there's, you know, and in a room like this, though there aren't huge numbers of people, there, our experiences will be multiple, multifaceted, and many and different. And so it's hard to be able to encapsulate it all in one moment. I'm not saying the effects of sexual sin are not devastating. There were consequences for David that went way beyond this moment. There were consequences. But there was also mercy and grace that he could engage in a way he might never have believed he could have done. I just sense that God wants to extend that mercy and that grace to people this morning. Whether you're married or you're single, maybe you've engaged in things you shouldn't have engaged in. And you know what? I'm not interested in any details. What I am interested in is that you could bring yourself to a moment where you say, it's before the Lord I've sinned. It's against you that I've sinned, God. No one else. It's against you. And that you can find restoration in the same way that David found it. Now, I'm also hopeful that if you're married here today, that you will have a different perspective of sex in your marriage and, and you'll stop thinking about performance and TV and, and, and you'll think about the covenant commitment that you've made to that person. And that every time you make life love to your husband or your wife, you're saying, I'm yours. Totally and exclusively yours. That's deeply, deeply satisfying. Phil, do you mind just coming up and 